Okay, here we go. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello again, dear friends. We are back for episode 9 of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. I'm your host, Paddy Bird, talking to you from London, England about my favorite subject, creative editing. Not which software has the most stable system or what the bitrate is for that codec, no. Everything we put out at Inside the Edit has just one purpose, to turn you into a powerful creative editor. If you haven't already, go over to insidetheedit.com and take our 14-day trial. You can get tons of creative editing theory absolutely free. Come and join thousands of editors around the world and many of the world's biggest broadcasters and media brands who've used our creative editing course. We've got a great show for you this week. It's another subject which I don't think I've ever heard talked about in the editing community, so I'll try and do it justice in this week's creative discussion. And we've also got another competition with a really cool prize, so stay tuned for that at the end of the show. We're still weaving the magic on it, but I'm also excited to be able to talk to you a little bit about something brand new we're doing at Inside the Edit, which I did actually hint towards a few weeks ago. I'll go into that a bit more later. Okay, so let's get started. I've always been fascinated, totally fascinated, at what makes an editing artist. Watching a beautifully cut film, you know, no matter what the genre or, or the length, really is a thing of beauty for me, and I've been passionate about it pretty much my whole adult life. But explanations as to how it's done and what happens in the mind of the editing artist uh, when creating it always seem to lack depth in the large percentage of things that I read and watched about the subject. Whenever I heard anyone talk about it, it was always in very macro terms. You know, the broad nature of the discussion was always really interesting, but it always left me feeling frustrated and wanting to say, yeah, that's really nice, but how do I actually shape the blocks on the timeline to create the thousands of feelings and emotions and stylizations in, in, in any film? I really felt that everyone got it apart from me. Personally, I, I don't actually learn very quickly at all. And when studying, I kind of like it when someone talks to me as though I know nothing. 
kind of like teaching a child, I guess. Um, I asked for definitions and reasons for everything, like a child. Why this? Or, you know, why do we do that? Or what does this word mean? Even if it's, even if it's really obvious. But I wasn't always like that. Early on, I kind of realized that when someone was teaching me something, and they'd asked if I'd understood what they'd just explained to me, I'd always nod and say yes for fear of appearing stupid, even though I didn't really understand what they were talking about. I was too scared to not appear clever or talented or even just competent. You know, looking at my own ego, the fear, the hesitancy, uh, the embarrassment and the refusal to acknowledge to people that I didn't understand what they were trying to teach me. I realized that if I'd carried on like this, I would be constantly caught out lying about the real depth of my knowledge in any given area. And this could cause havoc and be way more embarrassing than the short moment when I admitted that I didn't understand what someone had just taught me. You know, skip forward after 20 years of editing, And, you know, I'm finding myself writing inside the edit. I put myself back in that kind of same learning experience and assumed that everyone, like myself, would want real clarification and really elementary definitions for everything, you know, exactly the same as I would. And I thought that because it was an online course, there wouldn't be that embarrassment we all used to fear when putting our hand up for the teacher in class and admitting we didn't know. You know, that was what I would have wanted if I was the student. I wanted my mind to be a blank slate and to be filled with editing theory in the right order and to the right depth and at every single stage. Now, because editing is largely a self-taught art form, It has very little in the way of universally agreed principles. The terminology is also really fluid and changes from country to country and genre to genre. And this causes all kinds of stress for people entering into editing, as it did for me. What I also realized retrospectively was that because I was self-taught, I had huge gaps in my abilities at various points in my career, and I didn't even know it. There are literally dozens of interweaving skills within this art form, from narrative structure, to pacing, to music scoring, to designing picture arcs, to shot flow. I mean, it goes on and on. And it seemed inconceivable that I'd mastered them all if I didn't even know what they all were. Quite simply, I didn't know what I didn't know. Firstly, for my own progress throughout my career, and then for all the members at Inside the Edit, I've been asking myself what makes an editing artist for literally decades. Being fascinated with the mind and how creativity and learning works, I read loads on it and often found myself looking at neurological research to help me on my quest. There seemed to be a never-ending list of fascinating theories that caught my attention and explained various parts of the creative journey of an editing artist, 
or indeed any artist. One such theory that caught my attention was around memory. I remember reading about how memories work and where they're stored in the mind, and I immediately saw huge parallels and unanswered questions that I had around the journey to learning an art form like editing. Now, there are two main types of long-term memories, and they operate in two very different ways. The first type are explicit memories, and these are the conscious, intentional recollections of factual information and, and previous experiences and, and things like concepts. These would be me, Paddy, remembering the hair color of my first teacher at primary school, uh, reading that book with the orange cover that I loved when I was eight years old, the smell inside the car the first time I had a driving lesson, or how I felt when my eyes first saw a timeline. These explicit memories are the autobiographical self, the things and the experiences which make us, us. The second type are implicit memories, which are acquired and used unconsciously. They allow us to perform certain tasks without conscious awareness of the previous experiences. You know, these types of memories become available when we've done an action so many times that we aren't even aware of it. Think driving or riding a bike or tying our shoelaces or brushing our teeth. We all do these things reflexively. These are automated programs created by repetition. We don't have to think about doing these skills or analyze them in any way because They've been repeated so many times that they are now in our subconscious mind. Now, when we've mastered something, it gets hardwired into our mind. You know, we've memorized an internal neurochemical order that has become innate. Repeated experience enriches the brain's neural networks. And when it's done enough times, we can access it by a subconscious thought like, you know, every time we go to an ATM and type in our PIN, or when we dial a phone number that we've used for years. It's just automatic. Now, learning about these two types of memories really fascinated me, and I realized that they, they kind of acted as a blueprint for how we become editing artists. Each of them play a huge role in the development of how we edit, but more importantly, how far we develop our skills and abilities. Implicit memories, these automatic programs that are created by repetition, describe brilliantly the early stages of an editing career and why that first stage is so difficult and so frustrating. Now, there are several different things at play here that are worth discussing. Firstly, we need to train ourselves how to use the software like a reflex so, you know, that we don't need to analyze what we're doing, essentially. We want 100% or as near as 100% as we can manage of our mental capacity to be taken up with creativity. You know, how do we cut the film and the hundreds of things that go into that and not about how to repeatedly use a piece of technology. You know, taking clips out of the bins in the project window, 
putting them into the source monitor, scrubbing through to find the in and the out point, editing them down onto the timeline and moving and trimming them around. You know, that all needs to be done hundreds of times and repeated over and over to create a kind of reflexive fluidity. It sounds weird, but the software almost needs to become an extension of us. The consistent mind mapping of how we also organize our footage, both in the project window and on the timeline, also sets up repeated frameworks in our mind as we go from project to project. We're literally creating a three-dimensional organizational database in our minds that acts as our own unique and repeatable language. But, you know, this is only the technical framework behind the actual creativity. Again, through repeated exposure to different raw footage, we learn how to structure scenes, what shots would be good here or there, uh, what elements are missing, how we design certain emotions and stylizations and the pacing. You know, the creative list is, is pretty much endless. No two sets of raw footage are the same, but we start to see patterns over time and store them up in a massive creative database in, in, you know, in our minds. Our implicit memory, through consistent training and repetition, makes the technical use of any software and the way we structure footage in a high percentage of cases largely automatic. In my mind, this is where the failure lies in so many academic and training courses in editing. You know, the repetition is just not there. And so whatever editing theory has been learned is quickly forgotten, if not applied immediately and repeatedly. You know, nothing makes you master how to cut a perfect sync arc or a high-speed montage than cutting 100 of them back to back. And this is applicable to so many other skills. If I want to get good at tennis, uh, I'm going to have to turn up every single day and prepare to hit thousands of balls back and forth. When I first start out, many of them will go out and I'll even miss hit quite a large percentage as well if I'm, you know, if I'm a complete beginner. But gradually, over time, through a lot of practice, I'll start to move better. I'll start to get into position quicker as I'll have seen the ball that's coming towards me just that split second sooner than, you know, than I did yesterday. I'll hit the ball better and stronger and with more confidence. And the embarrassing days of being a complete novice will slowly fade from my memory. You know, the percentage of balls going out or in the net will gradually go down as I learn to target certain areas of the court. And all of this takes time. Of course, we can translate this to, to pretty much anything. It's not really a fashionable attitude, though, to, to learning, as the world is full of, you know, 10 easy steps to mastering, you know, whatever. This kind of thing permeates the internet and the marketing of thousands of courses around the world. It's so easy to sell something that is quick to learn, as none of us, myself included, uh, you know, none of us want to go through the pain and frustration of a long, drawn-out learning experience. But for me, even though our minds do not really learn anything other than 
superficial or surface level information that quickly. The experience and dedication to the journey is what determines our success. We're always confronted by a pretty undeniable fact. It's impossible not to improve at something if we practice. And the more we practice, the better we get. It's that simple. However, it was when I read about explicit memories, you know, the memories of personal experience, that I got most excited. As this is where I thought, you know, this is, this is where the artist is really born. We bring so much of who we are, you know, so much of what we like and what we've learned throughout our life to the edit suite, the movies and television we've watched, uh, the music we've listened to, the books we've read, and a hundred other cultural influences embed themselves in our work and our working practices. They drive the selection process in the raw footage. They influence how we construct things based on sequences we've watched previously. And they also play a part in the type of music that we think should be used, as well as an endless list of other creative decisions. I remember hearing the great director Werner Herzog say that if you wanted to make films, you need to go out and read loads of literature and see lots of art and learn about human experience, or, you know, words to that effect. You know, what we fill our consciousness with, what we get excited by, what we embrace, and what we're fascinated by creates us as unique individuals and therefore as editing artists. The experiences we've had shape us. The emotions we felt throughout our lives create the ability in us to recreate these emotions in artistic form on our timelines. You know, if you've been humiliated in your life or you've had your heart broken and you're cutting a scene about someone getting humiliated or having their heart broken, you will be much more emotionally prepared through life experience to cut that scene. Studying film scores, old and new, reading books on science, politics, history and film, going to art galleries and museums, watching classic comedy shows and sucking up anything on creativity or storytelling or constructing logical arguments. They, you know, all these things help me edit anything from high-end documentaries to lowbrow reality TV. I consider myself a creativity hoover. I never stop learning. I learned how to write voiceover for science and historical documentaries by reading science or historical books. I learned how to construct logical arguments for political documentaries by reading magazines like Harper's or The Economist or The New Yorker. I'd be in awe as I'd see how these incredibly talented writers used to expertly lay out the facts and create an argument and build a complex opinion. I'd be constantly amazed and then I'd sit down and memorise the structure and, and the way they did it with their words. I'd watch low-budget reality TV to study cutting patterns, pacing and, and, and music use. I'd study how they constructed actuality scenes, where they'd started them, you know, how they'd ended them and how they got around the inevitable geographical 
and continuity problems of compressing down so much of that footage. This allowed me, as a freelance editor, to pretty much move in and out of any genre uh, I wanted to cut. But my journey is, is far from unique. It's a very similar journey to so many of my friends and colleagues over the years. Most of the other influences I got and used in my artistic journey were given to me by those amazing friends and colleagues that I'd been lucky enough to have worked with and, and you know, hung out with. We all talked and debated endlessly about their meanings and influences and structures and effects, as you know, I'm sure everyone does. And out of that, I learned so much about filmmaking. And it all left me with one overarching theory. We are all artists. We all have the potential to become great artists. And we all have a completely unique perspective on life that can manifest beautifully in our creative work. I truly believe wholeheartedly that every single one of us has the potential to become great editors and great filmmakers. And in today's world, where the technology has been democratized completely, um, all it takes is will. So where do these two theories on memory come together? Where do they synthesize? Is there a moment where the explicit and implicit memories gel? Well, I love that quote by the artist Pablo Picasso. Learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. And that really personifies the meaning of implicit and explicit memories for me. We study the rules of our craft and master them. We take influence from all the greats before us. We practice and practice until so much of it is a reflex and we immerse ourselves in a wide range of artistic fields. It's at that moment that we have the experience, the knowledge and the know-how to deviate from the rule book and put our own personal artistic signature on whatever we're cutting. That is how we create our style. That is how we can make something new. That is how we turn ourselves into an artist. And that is how we can weave our name into the never-ending story that is creative editing. I hope you've enjoyed this week's creative discussion. If you have any thoughts on it or opinions or anything else we chat about on the show, please do send me an email to podcast.insidetheedit.com. I love hearing from our wonderful editing community. Okay, it's time for our Q&A, and this week's question comes from Dean in Wales. Dean has asked, how do you move in and out of scenes, and how do they connect together? He says he's been asking himself these questions, and he's not sure how to do it the right way. Well, this is a great question, Dean. Let's go into this. Now, this is obviously a long-form question, something 
you'd only really find in higher durational projects. As you'd imagine, there are several factors at play that are worth going through. Now, how you start and end a scene is dependent on a few factors, and one of them is how you intend to end the previous scene and how you're going to start the next scene. For example, if you've ended a scene on a big wide shot of a location, say, uh, it's very doubtful we'd start the next scene with a similar wide shot or framed shot, as this would be disorientating for the viewer. Audiences often like to be told uh, various things at the start of any scene. They like to be told where they are and what's going on, commonly referred to as the setup of any scene. But of course, we can reverse that and slowly reveal the location or reveal what's happening in some scenes to create intrigue or suspense or mystery. But let's always keep in mind that audiences like variation. They don't like seeing uh, the same thing over and over again because it looks and sounds predictable. And you know, it will get boring unless it's actually part of the story. Like, say, the genius 1990s comedy Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray, where the movie is the same day playing over and over and over again. I never play the same trick twice, or at least in close proximity in terms of how I start and end scenes, or, you know, even any kind of stylization, really. That's a handy way I like to think about this particular part of our craft. I always think that if I'm repeating something in any way or a particular cutting pattern, you know, I won't want to do it too close together on a timeline as it'll start to look like this is the only thing I can do. Another thing to consider is that it's also nice to craft a pause or some kind of breather at the end of a scene while we transition into the next one. If the end of the previous scene has been highly charged or emotional, then it's nice to have that emotional state resonate in the minds of our audience for the next 10 to 20 seconds. The last few lines from a character or the, or the action that played out in front of the camera at the end of the scene kind of acts like a tuning fork that will be reverberating in the minds of the viewer for a while as they go into the next scene. It's very common to end a scene and put some music up that matches the emotion of where we're at in the film or the documentary or whatever we're cutting, or what's just happened, uh, and string together a montage of B-roll as a kind of transition into the next scene. You know, think about the huge amount of times you see aerial shots of cities um, at the end of scenes and going into, into next scenes. That's like a breather that we have. Another factor to consider is the tempo or the energy of the scenes as they sit together. We wouldn't want to put two high energy scenes together with two very high energy music scores back to back we'd take it down and slow things out, or, or at least we'd have a pause in many cases. Remember that in long form, 
we're designing an emotional and visual roller coaster. So going up and down throughout the scenes and having variation in the, in the kind of bookends of the scenes gives the audience a great sense of fun, a great sense of variation, but also a great sense of structure. You know, they feel safe. Like we know what we're doing. We know how to tell visual stories. A great way I always visualize this kind of variation, Dean, is, is, is kind of like a game of reverse dominoes. You know, in the game of dominoes, the object of the game is to match the numbers on one side of, of, of the domino you've got with one side of the one that, that's already been played on the table. I always think about it in reverse. I'll match a three with a six or a two with a four. If I've ended a scene on a big wide shot that's full of energy, uh, it's nice to start the next scene at a slower pace on maybe a close-up or a medium shot that reveals something. It's that kind of variation that audiences really feel comfortable with. Of course, none of these are rigid rules, as there are no rigid rules in creative editing, but they are definitely some techniques and thought processes which are, are used quite a lot. So I hope this helps, Dean, and thanks very much for sending in your question. So let's move on to this week's competition. We've got a great prize for you this week. Uh, a few months back, we launched our first piece of Inside the Edit merchandise, which I'm really proud of. We call it the Editor's Periodic Table. And it's a glossary of creative editing terminology in the form of a beautifully designed film poster. These are the dozens of creative concepts and theories that we always have in our mind when cutting any project. And it's the perfect thing to hang in your cutting room and inspire you during those late nights in front of the timeline. You can take a look at it in our shop page at shop.insidetheedit.com and I'll also post it on the resources page for this episode, ep9, at podcast.insidetheedit.com. So to win a copy of the editor's periodic table film poster, please tell me what is the most difficult creative technique you do when editing and why. Just send me an email to podcast at insidetheedit.com and don't forget to tell me your name and where you're from. I can't wait to hear all of these answers. Okay, so what is this exciting new thing we're doing at Inside the Edit? Well, in one word, bootcamp. We're taking Inside the Edit live with some intense weekend training. Two full days of editing theory, tons of example edits, discussions, Q&As and feedback. We're going to dive deep into each of Inside the Edit's three levels over these weekends and the great thing is you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Yes, just like our new master's degree, it's 100% online. We're going to have a dedicated page set up on the site really soon, which will detail everything that we're packing into the two days. 
We'll have the pricing, the dates, and you'll be able to book yourself a place. So stay tuned as I'll be announcing more on that over the coming weeks right here on Once Upon a Timeline. Okay, that's it for another episode. I really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Please, please, please do not forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This show really will live or die on its popularity and ratings, and we want to keep this completely free resource going for as long as possible. We have huge plans for it. As always, I love mentioning the good people over at Universal Production Music, whose tracks we always use on every single episode of Once Upon a Timeline. I went a bit left field with the choices this week, but I love every single one of these tracks. They are so cool. If you like any of the ones I've used this week, and you think they'll be perfect for the project you're cutting right now, then head on over to the resources page for episode 9 at podcast.insidetheedit.com where you can find direct links to every single track on the Universal website. Take care, my dear friends, and I'll see you on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline next week. Please stay cool, please stay safe, and don't forget to stay cutting.